Would you agree with me that one of the largest barriers to the gospel is the hypocrisy of Christians or those who claim to be Christians? If you do agree with that, what would you say is the specific issue in the lives of Christians that causes them to be such a poor testimony for Christ? Let me mention one suggestion. What is the specific issue in the lives of some Christians that causes them to be such a poor testimony for Christ? I would suggest to you that it is a lack of thankfulness. And I have scriptural support for that suggestion. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2 for our time of studying God's Word this morning. We're going to focus again on the paragraph of thought in verses 12 through 16, which we introduced last week. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that we live in the midst of a complaining, unthankful society. If any group of people has reason to be thankful in this world, then surely it is those of us who live here in the United States of America. But it seems like people in our society look for reasons to complain and express discontentment. For example, if the weather is sunny in the summer, people complain because it's too hot. If the weather is rainy, then people complain that it's too cool. When we don't get much snow in the winter, people complain because there's not enough snowpack in the mountains. When we get, do get a lot of snow, people complain because there's too much shoveling to do and the driving is difficult. No matter which way things go in life, people seem to always find a reason to complain. People complain about living in a town where there's, there's not much to offer by way of variety or selection. Then on the other hand, people complain about living in a city where there's a lot going on and a lot of variety, but there's too much traffic and there are too many people. People in our society are discontent and unthankful, so they look for reasons and ways to express it. Let me much mention another example. I'm sure many of you can still remember all the riots that went on in Los Angeles at the time of the Rodney King verdict. Some people tried to say that was all because people were unhappy about the verdict, and that's what prompted them to burn cars and overturn cars and smash in windows of businesses, etc. But shortly after that, I was fascinated to notice that when the Chicago Bulls won the NBA championship, People in Chicago who were supposedly elated because their team won did the exact same things that people did in L.A. 
burned cars, overturned them, broke business windows, etc. Now explain that one to me. We live in a warped society. Or to borrow Paul's words here in verse 15, we live in the, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ are called upon to be different. That's what verses 14 through 16 are all about. Last week, if you were here, then you remember we considered verse 14, which says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. The New American Standard Bible reads, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The NIV reads, Do everything without complaining or arguing. The ESV reads, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. In the original text, the Greek text, the word all comes first for emphasis. All that you do should be done without grumbling and complaining. Everything we do should be done without murmuring or disputing. And in addition, the word do here in this verse, in the original text, is in the present tense, which emphasizes ongoing action. So all things are included and all time is included. Therefore, you could translate verse 14 this way. Continually do everything without grumbling and complaining. When you stop to think about that statement, it's amazing to realize that when Paul says, do all things, he doesn't specify any action we are to do. Instead of calling for an action, he calls for a certain kind of attitude. He doesn't spell out a course of action. He spells out a kind of action without grumbling and complaining. As I mentioned last week, the first word, and and I I gave you all the different translations, NASB, ESV, NIV, because each English translation renders these two words a little differently. Uh, As I mentioned last week, the first word is the Greek word gagusmas. It's an onomatopoeic word, which means that when you pronounce the word, you get the meaning of the word. So when you say gagusmas, you hear the meaning, ra 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 ra, just this grumbling and complaining attitude. It refers to murmuring or grumbling or complaining or griping or muttering in a low voice. This is the word that is used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament in the passages that describe the complaining of the Israelites against Moses and Aaron and God. It is complaint expressed in a negative attitude. The second word is disputing. It means criticism or arguing, argumentativeness. And you can see how these fit together. When you murmur and complain, then that naturally leads to being critical and argumentative. Beloved, please hear this. God despises those kinds of attitudes and activities. Few sins are uglier to God than complaining and a lack of thankfulness. One of the things that makes it so bad is that it is so contagious. Discontentment and murmuring or grumbling or complaining or griping and criticism spread like wildfire. Another thing that makes it so bad is that, generally speaking, the most indulged people are usually the most complaining people. People who are self-centered and cater to themselves feed their self-love, and when things don't go their way, the only thing they know to do is complain. 
So discontentment, complaining, and an unthankful heart are serious matters to God. So the Holy Spirit of God exhorts us through Paul in verse 14 not to be that way. Then, building on what we saw last week in verse 14, then in verses 15 and 16, Paul gives the reasons why we shouldn't be characterized as those who grumble and complain. And basically he says this. Let me summarize it before we work our way through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Basically he says this. When you go around in life grumbling and complaining, then you ruin your testimony for Christ because you're no different than people in the world. That's basically what he says. People in our world are grumblers and complainers. So when you live like that as a child of God, if you live like that as a Christian, then you don't show any contrast. You don't show any difference. So Paul exhorts us to be different. And as you know, if you've read the New Testament, this is a major theme in the pages of the New Testament. Those of us who know and love Jesus Christ are called upon to be different than people in the world around us. Ephesians 4.17 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. When Paul uses the term Gentiles, he is not simply referring to non-Jews. He is using the term as it was often used in the first century by Jewish people, and that is as a reference to people who don't know God. 1 Thessalonians 4.5 speaks of the Gentiles who do not know God. So in Ephesians 4.17, when Paul says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk, he is saying, don't walk like those who don't know God if you do know God. Christians have no business living just like unsaved people live. 1 Peter 4.3 says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So that's why in Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, don't walk that way anymore. Don't live like that anymore. Don't walk like Gentiles walk. Be different. Be different in your actions and even be different in your attitudes. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2. And he is primarily centering in on our attitudes when he says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Then verse 15 gives the reason or the motive, the incentive. Notice what he says. So that, here's a purpose clause, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now let's break that down to understand it since it's such a long sentence. The first thing Paul says is that we should not be negative, complaining people so that we may become blameless and pure children of God. Notice that. So that we may become blameless and pure children of God. You know what that tells us, beloved? It tells us that it's possible to be a child of God who is not blameless and pure. You see, just because you are a child of God doesn't mean that you're automatically the kind of child of God you ought to be. That is why throughout the New Testament we are exhorted to grow in Christ's likeness. When God saves us, we immediately become His children. But watch this. That doesn't mean that we immediately possess His character. 
We begin to take on His character as we grow and as the Holy Spirit builds into our lives the fruit of the Spirit and Christ-likeness. Paul did not want the Philippians to be satisfied that they were children of God. He wanted them to be the kind of children of God that reflected the character of God. So that's why he says here in verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, or blameless and innocent. Two words he uses here. The first word refers to outward display. We are to be blameless in our outward display that is blameless in the way we come across to those around us. We are to be above reproach in this matter of a thankful heart and a joyful attitude. The second word refers to motives or inner attitudes. So not only should we come across as being content and thankful, we should truly be that way within where only God sees and where we see. We, we shouldn't put on a front or put on a facade. We should truly be content and thankful, and we should display that to those around us. That's why the next part of verse 15 says, Without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Those words, in the midst of, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, those words remind us, of what Jesus prayed for his people, for us, in John 17. Let me remind you of this. Go back to the left, to the Gospel of John, for just a moment, to Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17. John 17, verse 15. As Jesus was praying, notice this fascinating request he made to the Father in John 17, verse 15. John 17, verse 15, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That tells us God's design, His plan. God saves us and leaves us in the world. He doesn't take us out. He saves us and leaves us in the world so that as we are sanctified, verse 17, we stand out in contrast to the world. That's exactly what Paul is getting at at Philippians 2. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. God has placed us here. He wants us to be here. And He wants us to be different. He wants us to be a contrast. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17. That's exactly what Paul is exhorting of us in Philippians 2. Now let's go back to our text there in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 15 says of Philippians 2 that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's one of the things that makes it so hard not to complain and grumble. This world we live in is twisted. This world we live in is unfair. As a result, it's easy for us to look at the inequities of life and complain about them. It's easy to complain and gripe and grumble and murmur when we've been treated wrongly by this crooked and distorted generation. When you get cheated in some way or when you get mistreated in some way, the natural tendency is to retaliate or complain about it. 
So here in verses 14 and 15 of Philippians 2, God is calling on us to resist our natural tendency. Furthermore, not only do we have to be careful not to react with a bad attitude because of the crooked and perverse world in which we live, we also have to be careful not to allow their complaining, unthankful attitudes to rub off on us. I had a gentleman say this to me last week after the message. He came up to me last week and said, Thank you so much for that message. It's exactly what the Lord needed at work. Everyone around me is complaining because they think that the company is doing this and the boss is doing this and everyone's complaining. It's just so easy for me to get swept up in it with them. Exactly. That's Paul's caution to us. He is saying, be careful not to allow their complaining, unthankful attitudes to rub off on you. Instead of copying or mimicking the world, we ought to imitate our Father God. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. Don't imitate the people in this ungrateful world. Imitate the positive virtues and attributes of our Father in heaven. And beloved, let me tell you something. If you live that way with a positive attitude, you will stand out. You want to be different in this world? You want people to see Christ in you live the way the Holy Spirit is exhorting here in Philippians 2. If you live with a content, thankful, positive attitude, you will be different. That's why the last phrase of verse 15 says, Among whom you shine as lights in the world. The word lights here is the word for stars. If you have a content, thankful, joyful attitude in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, you will stand out like a bright star on a black night. Jesus referred to this in Matthew 5. Go back again into the Gospels, this time to the first Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. And let's remember what Jesus exhorted of us in his immortal Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 14. He says this to the audience of believers gathered around him and to us by extension. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. You're it. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. Be consistent with who you are. Be different than the world around you. We're supposed to live in such a way so as to reflect the light of God. And so Paul's exhortation to us in Philippians 2 basically builds on what Jesus said here in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Be a light. Be a star, a bright star in a black night. That's the exhortation the Spirit of God gives us. Now, go back to that text in Philippians 2. So in verse 14 of Philippians 2, God commands us to do all things without murmuring and disputing, to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? What are the reasons or incentives or motivations? Number one, so we can grow into being all that we ought to be as children of God. Number two, so we can stand out as different in the midst of a dark world. Number three, 
so we can hold out the Word of God to those who see the difference in our lives. Notice how Paul says this. Verse 14 of Philippians 2, he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now here's the phrase, holding fast or holding forth the word of life. This phrase can be translated holding fast or holding forth. I think the context calls for holding forth. He is saying, be like this so you can hold forth the word of life to other people. In other words, Paul is saying this, our lives, more specifically, our attitudes, build a platform from which we speak the word of life. But listen, if you go around complaining and griping, who's going to believe your message? Have you ever thought about that? How can you talk about the joy of forgiveness, the joy of a relationship with Christ, while you're complaining and griping all the time? That's Paul's point. So as we move from verse 15 to verse 16, Paul transitions from personality to proclamation. To say it another way, he moves from character to conversation. If your life doesn't support your message, then you send mixed signals to people around you. So it's no accident that Paul dealt with attitude first before turning to actions. Let me say it this way. Verse 15 precedes verse 16, not only chronologically, but also theologically. Hein, the German philosopher, said, Show me your redeemed life, and I might believe in your Redeemer. That's a fair statement. And that's the point the Holy Spirit is making through Paul here in this text. The way we live, as described in verses 14 and 15, gives us the open door to hold forth the word of life to people around us. When we display a changed life that is different than the world around us, then we can point people to the source of our changed life, which is the Word of God. Paul refers to God's Word here as the Word of life. That is because the Word of God gives spiritual life. It sustains spiritual life, and it increases spiritual life. There are so many passages that say this. James 1.18 says, Of His own will He brought us forth through the Word of truth, or by the Word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Having been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. In John 16, no, in John 6.63, Jesus said, The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. They are life. God's word is the source of spiritual life. But what a contradiction it is when we have been born again through the word of life, but we display the same rotten attitude the world displays. Do you think they're going to be eager to hear what we have to say? Not a chance. Thanks, but no thanks. Not interested. If, if your philosophy or your belief it, it can't accomplish any more than that, I'm not interested. So why... 
Why should you do all things without murmuring and disputing? Why should you do all things without grumbling and complaining? Here's what the Spirit of God says. Number one, so you can grow into being all you ought to be as a child of God. And number two, so you can stand out as different in the midst of a dark world. And number three, so you can hold out the Word of God to those who see the difference in your life. And then number four, so your spiritual leaders can rejoice in the day of Christ. Does that one surprise you? That doesn't seem to fit with the others, does it? But that is exactly what the Spirit of God prompted Paul to write. Let me show you. Verse 16, he says, Holding forth the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Basically what Paul is saying here is this. He wanted to know that the spiritual investment he had made in the lives of the Philippians was a worthwhile investment. He didn't want to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and see that the Philippians had not become all that God wanted them to be. If that happened, then Paul would feel like his labor had been in vain. Now, we hear that and we say, whoa, whoa, Paul, come on. At least they're saved. At least they're believers. At least they're Christians. At least they're going to heaven. That wasn't enough for Paul. That's not the way Paul thought. He did not want them to be satisfied with the fact that they were saved. He wanted them to grow into all God planned for them. He wanted them to become blameless and pure children of God. Not just children of God blameless and pure. He wanted them to be without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He wanted them to shine as a bright contrast to the world in which they lived. That was the burden of Paul's heart. That was his longing. That was his passion. Then he would be able to rejoice in the day of Christ. The day of Christ, that phrase here in verse 16 is a reference to the day that Jesus descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. And the indication of Scripture is that coming right off of the day of Christ is the judgment seat of Christ where all believers, all, all believers in Christ will be gathered to have our lives evaluated for rewards or lack of rewards. And Paul says, listen, when that day comes, I want to be able to know I've not run in vain or labored in vain. This isn't the only place where Paul made a statement like this. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 2. Turn over to the right, past Colossians to the next letter. 1 Thessalonians 2, and notice what Paul said to the believers in Thessalonica. <clears throat> he says in verse 19, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? It's the exact same thought as Philippians 2. Paul is saying to the, the believers here in Thessalonica that they were his hope. In other words, their growth is what he lived for. Just as parents live to see their children grow to maturity, to produce and reproduce. Over in chapter 3, he said something very similar. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. He says this, for now we live 
if you stand fast in the Lord. Now we're living. This is really life. They were Paul's hope. They were his joy. When Paul thought of how God had saved them and transformed them and changed them and what they would become by the grace of God, he was overwhelmed with joy. They were his crown of rejoicing. What does he mean by that? Paul's joy at the judgment seat of Christ would be what God's grace had accomplished through him in the lives of these Thessalonians. It's a challenging thought to realize that Paul carried out his ministry. He lived his life in light of the return of Jesus. He was always conscious of that. Human success did not matter to Paul. He knew he wasn't successful in life unless eternity showed that. He didn't get caught up in the world's view of success. The only standard and measurement that mattered to him was the Lord's evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm afraid that many times those of us who are pastors and spiritual leaders can lose sight of that perspective. Paul lived, Paul ministered in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what motivated him. That's what kept him encouraged. That's what kept him strengthened. That was his source of accountability. He knew that one day he would stand face to face with Jesus Christ to have his life evaluated and his ministry evaluated. And he wanted the Thessalonians to know that they were his hope and joy and crown of rejoicing as he looked forward to that day. So he says to them in in chapter 2, verse 20, after verse 19, where he says, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. In other words, Paul was saying, when we stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, then you will be our source of glory and joy. That's how much we love you and how much you mean to us. In Galatians 6, 14, Paul said, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here he says he glories in the Thessalonians. Is there a contradiction here? I mean, which is it? God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross. And here he says, you are our glory. Is there a contradiction? Not at all. The Thessalonians were the fruit from the preaching of the cross. There's a sense in which Paul couldn't separate the two in his mind. God had gloriously saved these people and he had used Paul when Paul came to town preaching the cross of Christ. So Paul's love for the cross of Christ and his love for the people of God were all bound up together as an indivisible one. And Scripture is replete with this concept. The Apostle John said, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Paul loved the people of God. And because he did, he wanted, them to, he wanted to see them become all that God wanted them to be. Then he would be able to rejoice in the day of Christ that he had not run in vain or labored in vain. So he encouraged his friends in Philippi to be all that God wanted them to be. Can I do the same thing with you this morning? Maybe make this a little personal. 
By God's grace, I've had the privilege of serving here for lots of years. Lord willing, there will be many more years. But I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday and look back on these years with the thought, you know, all those years were in vain because we never as a church became what God wanted us to become. We never became the people God wanted us to become. And I know as I say that, that I I speak for all the spiritual leaders here at Grace. No one, no one wants to dump a bunch of years into something that turns out to be in vain. In Isaiah 49, 4, it says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. What a tragic thought. I don't want to say that at the end of my life. No one does. So I give you the same exhortation that Paul gives in Philippians 2. And here's what Paul says. Maybe better yet, here's what the Spirit of God says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for it. You can't work for your salvation. You can't work it out. You have it. It's within because you have Christ. Now live it out. Work it out with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And as you work out your salvation, do everything without murmuring and disputing. Do everything in life without grumbling and complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. Not just children of God, blameless and pure children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Make sure people see a difference in your life. Use that to build a platform from which to speak about Christ and the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain so fascinating to me to see the way the Spirit of God guided Paul to write those words because he, not, he doesn't merely give an exhortation in verse 14 of Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling and complaining. He gives the reasons. He gives the motivation, the incentive, so that you can be all that God wants you to be, so that you can be a bright light, so you can hold forth the word of life, and so that your spiritual leaders can rejoice in the day of Christ. So, beloved, as we come through this time of the year where we think especially about thanksgiving, let Philippians 2.14 be riveted in our hearts once and for all, never to leave us. Do everything in life without grumbling and complaining so that we can be what God wants us to be. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing, I would encourage you to take just a few moments to think about what you have seen. Maybe you were here last week, so what you saw last week in God's Word, and then again this morning from God's Word. These two messages on this powerful text in Philippians 2, where God calls us to be different than the world around us, where God calls us to be bright lights, stars in a black night. And as you reflect on what you've seen from the Word of God this morning, maybe last week and this morning, ask the Spirit of God to shine His spotlight on your life. Not merely on your life, on your heart, on your attitude, to see 
if you are blameless and pure children of God. Not merely children of God, blameless and pure. The kind of children of God who are bright lights, who are stars on a black night. The kind of children of God who have built a platform with their lives so they can hold forth the word of life to others. Ask the Spirit of God to point out any contradictions in your life, to point out where you are ruining your testimony for Christ to those around you by poor attitudes. Now, if if you're here today without a relationship with Christ, those things there aren't really the focus. Remember, Paul says in Philippians to work out your salvation, assuming that they already had it. But if you don't have it, you can't live it out. So if you're here today without a relationship with Christ, then that needs to be the issue that you grapple with. You need to realize your lost, condemned condition, and you need to turn to the Lord for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness, for salvation. And if by chance there are Christians in your lives who have been a poor testimony and maybe have given you reason to doubt whether or not you really want to turn to Christ, then accept my apology on their behalf. But Christ is the issue. Not those who claim to belong to him or who do belong to him and who all of us fall short. That's, that's not the issue. Christ is the issue. Don't use that as an excuse. Don't say, yeah, but I know this Christian and he's such and such, or I know this Christian and she does this. That's not the issue. The issue is your standing with Jesus Christ, your relationship with Jesus Christ. When you stand before him someday, he won't ask you what you thought of other Christians or others who claimed his name. The issue will be how do you stand with him? What is your standing with him? So if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, surrender to him. Let go of whatever is holding you back and turn to Jesus Christ in humility in repentance, and childlike faith. However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, respond. Don't ignore it. Respond in whatever way you need to respond. Father, as we close our time together this morning, we are challenged by the exhortations of your word. If we would be transparent and honest, every one of us would have to admit we fall short of this compelling exhortation in Philippians 2 where we are told to do everything without grumbling and complaining so that we may may become blameless and pure children of God. Give us the passion to be not merely children of God, but the kind of children that you want us to be. The kind who are lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Those who shine as as a testimony for Christ to show the difference he makes in a life. And those who hold forth the word of life to others around us who are dead in trespasses and sins and need the life that comes through the truth of your word. And Father, I pray that we as a church, we as your people, we here at Grace Bible Church would become the kind of believers you want us to be so that we've not spent our strength in vain when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And Father, for anyone here among us who doesn't know Christ, may your Holy Spirit cause them to forget any 
anything on the periphery, anything that is really not the central issue of how they stand with Jesus Christ, and may they be forced to focus on that so that they will see their sin, they see their need for repentance, and they will humble themselves before you today and respond by receiving Jesus Christ by faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.